0: So this morning, yeah, I'm excited this morning, I'm beginning, I'm, I'm excited to begin a new series with you uh, through through one of the most popular uh, Sunday school stories of all time. So it's probably rivaled with David and Goliath and Noah's Ark. Uh, and so we're beginning a an eight-week series through the book of Jonah. And this morning, I have entitled the first message in this series, I don't know if you saw it, Run, Jonah, Run! Now... That's a bit of a test because if you don't recognize that cultural reference, it means that you're either much older or much younger than me, and therefore you do not have any sort of frame of reference for 90s movies. Uh, Not that I watched Forrest Gump in the 90s because when it came out I was 10, so that would have been inappropriate, but uh, I digress. So as we we start looking at this, this fascinating Old Testament book, I wanna begin by giving you some background and some framework on the book of Jonah, because while a lot of people know the story of Jonah, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, right? People all over the place have heard this story. If you ask people what this story is about, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian, for the most part, people's response doesn't go far beyond, well, Jonah disobeyed God. He was swallowed by a big fish. That is kind of the extent of what we understand and know about Jonah, and so I want to settle the, the age-old debate this morning about whether, in fact, it was a fish or a whale that swallowed Jonah, and, and I'm sticking with fish, because the English says fish, and the Hebrew says fish, and I think there's been some confusion uh, between the stories of Jonah and the stories of Moby Dick. Those are two different <laughs> stories, okay? So you can, you can debate that with your families around the dinner table tonight, but I'm sticking with fish. And so what I'm going to do this morning is this morning is going to be probably more largely a teaching morning rather than a preaching morning, uh, because I want to give you background on the story. uh, And then we're just going to look at the first three verses so that we can set up where we're going to go over the next few weeks. And so some would argue that the book of Jonah is not a true story, but rather it is a fictional one, Uh, Because of the events that are portrayed in it, these events seem rather fantastical to be true. Like Jonah got swallowed by a fish and lived in the fish for three days. Uh, Though even those who argue that it's fiction conclude that it has an important message and there's lessons that we can learn from it. And so my response to this controversy... is is of whether Jonah is true or not, and how I think Christians across the board should respond to these sorts of controversies when they arise, is the best practice for followers of Christ is to find yourself coming to the same conclusion that Jesus comes to, okay? So, and Jesus treats Jonah as a real person, and the events of this book as something that actually happened. In Matthew 12, Jesus in fact draws contrast between Jonah and himself in Matthew 12, verse 40. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so if our Lord and savior concludes that Jonah is true, we should too. That's that's enough authority for us, right? But in addition to this, uh, not not that we need any more authority to believe it's true, but Jonah doesn't actually read like a fictional story, because in fictional stories, writers like to embellish, they like to focus on details and draw them out, the high points of the story. And Jonah, on the other hand, is written in a very matter of a fact matter of fact way. Uh, you know, it's funny because people readily remember Jonah and the fish, but in actuality. There's only two verses in the entire story of Jonah about the fish. And it it simply says a fish swallowed Jonah. He remained there for three days. And then the fish spit him out when God commanded it to. There's, There's no embellishment to this story at all. It doesn't read like a fiction story. And lastly, we know that Jonah himself is a real person who lived and prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II of Judah. Uh, he's mentioned in 2 Kings verse four, or verse four, chapter 14, verse 25. Uh, 2 Kings 14, it talks about Jeroboam restoring the border of Israel from Nabal Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, And it says that this happened according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from gath And we know that if you look at the first verse of the book of Jonah, the description of the person is the same. It says Jonah, the son of Amittai. And so we know Jonah is this a real person. Uh, And so there's going to be a timeline that's going to come up here. So this means that based on 2 Kings, the the events of Jonah took place during the 8th century B.C. Jeroboam's reign lasted from 786 to 746 B.C. So it was likely that the events of this book occurred sometime around then. And I'm going to cover a little bit why understanding the timeline of Jonah is important for us because it will help us discern what was happening in, the time of, in this time in Israel's history and what would Jonah's mindset have been. Uh, but before I get into that, I want to consider what are the form and the themes of the book of Jonah. And Jonah is one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, but unlike the other prophets in the Old Testament, the focus on Jonah's story is not centered around the message that Jonah preached. right? Rather, it's, it's centered around Jonah's experience. And so it's, it's different than the other prophets in the sense that it's more biographical in nature, rather than being focused around the proclamations that Jonah was making. And the book recounts basically two incidents that happened that it splits into almost two identical halves of the book. In the first half, we see God give Jonah a command and Jonah disobeys that command. And that's covered in verse, or chapter one and two. And then in the second half of the book, we see God give Jonah a command again, And this time Jonah responds to the command and that's covered in chapter three and four. And if you actually split the book of Jonah in half and you look at chapter one and chapter three, chapter two and chapter four, you're gonna see a lot of verses that actually mimic one another as you read through it. And so that's an activity. If you're kind of geeky like me and you wanna do that, go ahead and check that out. Some of you are like, that sounds terrible. Sounds so boring. But (laughs) while in Sunday school, the climax of the book of Jonah is, as we've already said, the big fish, right? This is what everybody remembers. But when you read the story, the actual pinnacle of the story of Jonah actually occurs in chapter four, when God asks Jonah the same question twice. He asks him in chapter four, verse four, and chapter four, verse nine. And he asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? That is a rich Theological and a rich practical question that exposes our hearts and the view that we hold of who God is. And we are going to circle back to that question multiple times over the coming weeks of this series. Do you do well to be angry? As for the theme of Jonah, this is where we start to discover that uh, a simple book on the surface isn't actually that simple. It's quite complex. It is a book that has many lessons and themes that you can pull from it, and it can be tackled from so many different angles. And if you read any number of commentaries on it, you will quickly discover that there's a wide range of conclusions and viewpoints that are taken from the book of Jonah. And so the book of Jonah is about race, the book of Jonah is about a, a hyper-nationalism, this unhealthy pride in your own country. It's about missions. It's about the struggle of trusting God. It's a, a message that challenges our viewpoints on who God is and what he's like. One commentator, he kind of quips jokingly in his, in his commentary, the message of Jonah could simply be, don't be like Jonah. Like that's That's accurate. But largely, the the message of Jonah is one of God's abundant mercy. And as those who read the book of Jonah in the church age, we read it as, as Brian Estelle classifies it. He says, it's a message to the church that Christ, the risen one who is greater than Jonah, brings salvation through judgment and mercy to his people who call on his name. Because as those who read the book of Jonah on this side of history, that allows us to stare into the revealed work of Jesus Christ. Jonah is a foreshadowing of what becomes a reality in Jesus. God's great mercy pouring out upon those who do not deserve it. Which by definition is mercy. And herein lies some of my reasoning for What drew me to bring us through this book in this time of year, because it's an excellent foreshadowing of what becomes a reality in Jesus, specifically on the cross. And I don't know if you realize, but in less than two months, we're actually going to gather here on Good Friday and we're going to gather here on Resurrection Sunday and we're going to reflect and we're going to celebrate the most significant event that has happened in the history of the world. And so my hope is that as we walk through Jonah, uh, it helps prepare our hearts for the coming Easter weekend, that, that we will be able to embrace the bigness of what God has done for us, and not just on an individual level, but on a wide, far-reaching global level for all of humanity. And so that's my hope as we go through the book of Jonah We're going to do some heart work over the next few weeks to prepare ourselves for the reality of Easter. And so what is the timeline? Jumping back to the timeline, what's happening in Israel so we can understand what's going on? Well, an important question for us to ask about Jonah that we we maybe don't think about is, is why was Jonah sent to foreign lands? He's a, he's a prophet of God's people, and almost exclusively, God's prophets were sent up, they were raised up and sent out by God to prophesy to his own people. And, and this was a unique assignment that God gave to Jonah. So, so what was the state of Israel at this time, as well as the state of the surrounding nations? Uh, knowing this will give us some excellent background and understanding of Jonah. And so let's consider what was happening in the 8th century B.C., And largely during this time, the kingdom of Judah had for many years, right? Remember at this time, Judah and Israel, they had split into two tribes in Judah, 10 in Israel. And so they had split. And during this time, the kingdom of Judah had been enjoying a time of blessing from the Lord. And this time of blessing began during the reign of King Jehu. And you can read all about King Jehu in 2 Kings 9 and 10 if you want to do some background reading. But what Jehu did is he actually... Uh, eradicated Baal worship amongst God's people. And as a result of his faithfulness to the Lord, God promised that he would bless Jehu to the fourth generation of his dynasty. God gives him this blessing in 2 Kings 10, verse 30. He says to him, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And so we can then fast forward four generations, and guess who that brings us to? That brings us to King Jeroboam II, during whose reign Jonah prophesied. So King Jeroboam inherited a time of blessing because of the Lord's promise over Jehu. But he was the last generation in Jehu's dynasty that inherited that promise. And so while this was a time of blessing there would have been this ominous understanding amongst God's people that that blessing that they had enjoyed for generations may be coming to an end. And who was the main threat to the Israelite nation if that blessing came to an end? Well, it was the nation of Assyria, whose capital city was Nineveh, the city that God commanded Jonah to go to and prophesy. And now, Assyria was a Gentile and a pagan nation, and they bordered Israel. And though during this time there was relative peace, the Assyrians and the Israelites had a hostile history. They were enemies of one another. In fact, during the reign of King Jehu, before he had eradicated Baal worship and God blessed his rule, King Shalmaneser of Assyria had been taking tribute from the Israelite king, meaning he was forcing him to pay him, maybe on the the threat of invasion. And so while Israel had enjoyed years of blessing at this point, Assyria had always remained a threatening superpower to their west. And I can tell you, as a nation, Assyria was one of the most barbaric, they were one of the most violent, they were one of the most cruel empires that existed in the ancient world. Assyria had an expansionist mindset, always wanting more land. And as they expanded, they would burn cities as they conquered them. They would torture and they would dismember the inhabitants of those cities. They practiced as a nation the sacrifice of children. And a common activity, just to give you an idea of what kind of people these were, the Assyrian soldiers would cut off the legs and one arm of their enemy so that they could shake their hands as they were dying. These are the kinds of people that the Assyrian nation had. They were unspeakably evil. In fact, the capital city Nineveh remained a symbol of evil even long after it was destroyed. And the early church regarded Nineveh as a symbol for the devil himself. And so you can imagine the Israelite perception of their neighbors to the west. Ultimately, historical and biblical accounts tell us that Amos and Hosea both prophesied disaster for Israel at the hands of Assyria. And this did come to pass in 722 BC when the southern kingdom of Israel and its capital Samaria fell to an Assyrian invasion. So all this to say, an Israelite in Jonah's time would not have a positive view of Assyria. In fact, their view would likely be that they staunchly hate Assyrians. And quite reasonably, they feared the Assyrian nation. And so with that picture in mind, the last thing that we need to consider is what was God's relationship with his people? What was going on in Israel at this time? Well, God's relationship with his people was and still is defined by covenant. Our God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And it is the covenant that he made with his people that defines his relationship with them. There are multiple scriptural references where God reiterates his covenant with his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. You will have no other gods before me. God's covenant with Israel made them unique. They were distinct from the nations around them. First of all, they were a theocracy. They were a nation ruled by their God. They were a nation of one God, while all other nations had multiple gods. They lived by divinely given laws through Moses that God gave them. God's relationship with his people made them one of a kind and uniquely blessed. But in regards to his covenant, there are two important things to consider. The First thing is that his people had a responsibility as those under the covenant. During the time of Jonah, Israel's covenant with God was becoming increasingly strained because of their rebellion against him. Their covenant relationship with with God was, was to have no other gods but Yahweh. And in the time of Jeroboam's reign, the people were increasingly turning from the Lord. And corruption was growing. And whenever this happened, like a good parent responding to the rebellion of a child, this behavior would bring the Lord's judgment upon his people. And an interesting dynamic that tended to occur when God's judgment came to his people is it often meant blessings for another people. As God turns from those who reject him, though never fully and always with a redemptive purpose in mind, he would pour his blessing upon others for a time. And Jesus alludes to this dynamic when he himself is rejected by his own people at Nazareth. In Luke 4, 24 to 29, he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So there's an example. There were many widows in Israel. And Jesus says, Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent to a non-Israelite and blessed her. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian again. Many lepers in Israel, but Elisha was sent outside of Israel to a, to a Syrian. He was blessed by God. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and those they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff." And we see this same dynamic uh, at play as God's people reject the message of the gospel. We see God's people reject Jesus with the message of the gospel. We see God's people reject uh, the message of the gospel from the apostles and they increasingly turn to the Gentiles, right? So there's this, this throughout history and the relationship between God and his people, there's this reality of judgment upon Israel, blessing upon Gentile nations. And the second important thing to consider is God's ultimate purpose for his covenant with his people. God's covenant with Israel must always be interpreted through his covenant with the patriarchs of Israel, starting with Abraham. What did God say to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3? He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we we see from God's initial covenant with Abraham. His purpose for the covenant. His purpose was a a promise to bless Abraham with the purpose that he would then be a blessing. Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you would be a blessing. And eventually that blessing would lead to all of the families of the earth being blessed through Abraham. And from this very first covenant with Abraham, we can already see the connection to Jesus Christ. And that connection becomes even more clear When God restates his covenant in Genesis 17. And the Apostle Paul interprets it for us in Galatians chapter 3. Speaking directly about Jesus. In Genesis seventeen seven, it says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And Paul tells us in Galatians chapter three, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And so, yes, Israel was a distinct nation from the surrounding nations. They were uniquely blessed. But ultimately, the purpose of that blessing that they enjoyed was to be a blessing. And God doesn't change. He's the same today. He's made a covenant with those who trust in Christ. And one of the primary purposes of that covenant is that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. We are not blessed in order to keep it for ourselves. We are blessed in order to pour that blessing upon other people by making his name famous among the nations, by proclaiming the gospel, by blessing others both physically and spiritually. God's purpose in covenant remains the same. You've been blessed and so then go and bless. And these are the dynamics that are at play in the book of Jonah. And we're going to see how these dynamics affect the story as we go. And so let's, in the the time remaining, begin to look at the text in verse 1 to 3. And we're going to make some quick observations that we're going to expand upon in the coming weeks. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. It's significant that the book begins with the word of the Lord being spoken to Jonah. And that word is arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. Meaning Jonah was to go to the Assyrian capital and denounce the people of Assyria for their evil ways. So immediately, we see in this word of the Lord to Jonah, God's sovereignty that exists not only over his people, but over every nation of the world. The Israelite nation may be God's chosen people, but every nation is in subjection to the lordship of God. He is Lord over all creation. And he exercises his rule, showing mercy and judgment accordingly. And this occurs through his unmatched authority as king of kings and lord of lords. And so we see right from the beginning the high view of, of the sovereignty of God amongst all the nations that the book of Jonah holds. The second verse of Jonah also gives us a glimpse into what kind of sovereignty God's sovereignty entails. What kind of ruler is God over his creation? Because the fact that God commanded Jonah to go to a foreign pagan nation who had no knowledge of him and therefore no fear of him to denounce their evil shows that he is a God concerned not just with his covenant people, but with others and a God who is powerful enough to bring even those who do not know him, who do not acknowledge him to their knees if he so chooses but primarily in sending Jonah to speak out against the people of Nineveh, what is God doing? He's showing his mercy. He's giving them an opportunity. He's giving them a warning. They were blatantly evil. He could have just destroyed them. And he would have been just in doing so. But instead... He says, Jonah, go and denounce them for their evil ways. In fact, it's interesting, because later on, Jonah's actually going to lament that God sent him. He's going to lament about having to go to Jonah, because he knows that God's merciful. And he may spare the Assyrians, because Jonah knows that Just because God's denouncing their evil doesn't mean that he's going to destroy them. If he's denouncing their evil, he's giving them a chance to repent. And in Jonah's heart, he doesn't like it. He doesn't want that to happen. He's like, I don't want them to repent. They're my enemies. I would be very okay, God, if you destroyed them. And that reveals a problem in Jonah's heart. We're going to unpack that in the coming weeks. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah as God's decree would come to any of his prophets. And the usual response from the prophets is obedience, but not with Jonah. He did rise up, but instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah decides to flee to Tarshish. And there's a map that's going to come up. And so as you you can see on this map, you can see where Nineveh is and you can see where Tarshish is. And you can see that Jonah went the exact opposite way. And so, as as Jonah runs away, he goes down to Joppa, which is around modern day Tel Aviv for you geography lovers. And he jumps on a ship and he heads to Tarshish. And verse 3 tells us what motivation Jonah had for doing this. It actually tells us twice in these verses. He says he wanted to be away from the presence of the Lord, that's why Jonah was running to get away from the presence of the Lord. And he was actually trying very hard to do so. Because the way Jonah thought he could escape the presence of the Lord was to go somewhere where there were no Israelites, where there were no believers. He thought, okay, if if there's none of my kinsmen, then God won't be here. It's a bit of a misunderstanding of his God, but... But that's what he thought. And so that's why he actually went to Joppa because Joppa was a port that was outside of Israelite control. So he thought, okay, I'll go to Joppa where I can actually find a boat that I can get on that shouldn't have any Israelites. It'll just have foreigners and I can escape with them. And then I'm going to go down to Tarshish. And Tarshish was this place that was far in the east. It was this mysterious place to the people of Israelites. And so he figures, okay, if I go to Tarshish, there's likely not going to be any of my kinsmen there. And so hopefully getting away from my kinsmen means I'm away from the presence of the Lord. And interestingly enough, Jonah's initial instinct to run succeeded. He thought, but it looks like it succeeded. God allowed him to go. And when Jonah paid the fare and he went down into the boat, he probably thought he was going to succeed in running away from God. But what God was doing is he was actually setting the stage To teach Jonah a very important lesson. And so as we've just begun to look at the background and the opening of this book. There's some lessons that we can see that are going to come forward already. Which we're going to examine deeper in the coming weeks. But just to start to to stir your own hearts and minds towards these things. I want to touch on a couple of them quickly. The first thing that we can see in the book of Jonah is that Jonah wanted a god of his own making. He wanted God to be what he thought God should be. We're going to see as we unpack this story that Jonah, he doesn't really like the real God. He doesn't like how he operates. He doesn't like what he does. He has contempt for God's ways. And this is why God confronts him twice in chapter four. And he says, do you do well to do angry or to be angry, Jonah? And I can tell you that this is a problem, I believe, in the church in our day. That there's too many people who want a God of their own making. And, and, and what that effectually means is casting judgment upon the real God. And that's a dangerous and a foolish place to find ourselves. You know, sometimes in the name of intellect, in the name of inclusivity, in the name of human thinking and smarts, we question God. And, and while questioning God is okay, and crying out to God is okay when we don't understand Him. Like th- there's this reality of crying out to the Lord is like I-, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why are you doing this? Why are you working this way? Why is this happening? That is right to lament sometimes those things. And God understands that heart from His people. But I, I find in the church today there's there's far too much smugness. In modern evangelicalism and in the church as a whole, that think we have a right to question God and form, in the form of casting judgment upon who he is because we read something that's difficult, we read something that we don't like in his word, we don't agree with it in the way that maybe he works, and, and he rightfully confronts us and says, do you do well to be angry? I'm God, you're not. Who are you? And sometimes we need to hear that from God. Sometimes we need to be reminded, he's God. He knows, I don't. That's where faith and trust comes in. Do we believe that he is who he said he is? Or don't we? When we see circumstances arise that maybe don't match what we think, what do we hold to? What do we trust in? Jonah wanted a God of his own making. And there's too many people who call themselves followers of Christ, who want the same thing. Jonah lacked, lacked trust in God on so many levels. Well, we're going to unpack that as we go through it. You know, the thing with Jonah is he probably believed the prospect of the success that he was going to have in going to Assyria was quite low, right? Like, he's probably thinking, okay, God, you're, you're sending a prophet from Israel to the Assyrians, you know what they're like and you want me to go and, 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 and denounce their actions. Do you think that's going to be successful? Right? Jonah's probably thinking, I'm likely going to die here. God, like you're sending me to a death sentence. What are you doing? Right? He, didn't, he didn't trust God. And the, the the prospect of going to Nineveh and going to Assyria, it also it also came with a the reality that that Jonah wouldn't have been able to see any, any theological justification for going there. Why? Why are you sending me there? We're your people. We're your covenant people. They're evil pagans, God. What is the point? And Jonah knew that Nahum had actually already prophesied that Nineveh was going to be destroyed. And so Jonah was probably like, God, you're going to destroy it at some point anyways. What is the point? Why are you sending me there? This doesn't make sense. And Jonah makes the mistake that a lot of us make. God gave him no reason to go to Nineveh. And Jonah couldn't think of a good reason to go to Nineveh. And so there must not be one. How often do we do that? God told me to do this. God's word says this. I don't really understand why. He hasn't really given a reason. Ah, you must not want me to do it. And we trust our own thinking. Wrapped into this is the fact that Jonah had a lot of pride in his nation. You can imagine Jonah sitting there going, they're our enemies. Right? How dare you show them mercy? We're your chosen people. They're going to come here and destroy us. Destroy them first. And I can tell you, this kind of, them versus us mindset is so prevalent in our world today. Everything is them versus us. We've completely lost the reality of nuance, the ability to, to, to speak to people who are on the other side of this fence. It's like this fence is up and it's just not moving. It's almost at this point today where you could, you could look at someone and you could know where they're going to land on every single issue because it's become so much us versus us. Them. And there's no space for that amongst God's people. There's absolutely no space for it. This kind of us versus them mindset is increasing in the church. And, and the reality of the church is we're for all people. That we're for everybody. We may disagree with many. We may see what people do and it grieves us. But all of us were that at one point. Every single one of us. Before the mercy of God, before the grace of Jesus Christ came into our lives. That was us. And so there's no space in the church for us versus them. None at all. We don't know better than God. Jonah wanted destruction for them. And it reveals a misunderstanding of the Lord and it reveals a sickness in Jonah's heart. And lastly, Jonah struggled with what we all struggle with. You know, the, the thing is, as that commentator said, you know, maybe the, the message of the book of Jonah is don't be like Jonah. And there's truth to that, but at the same time, we can't vilify Jonah because Jonah largely represents us. Let's be honest. Jonah struggled with obedience to God. And obedience to God and obedience to his service is something that every single one of us as followers of Christ and as sinners struggle with. And so before we vilify Jonah, we have to recognize we're like Jonah. At times, we want a God of our own making. Oh, it would be so much easier, God, if you were like this. (sighs) Right? At times, we lack trust in God. You haven't given me a reason. This looks like it's not going to go well, so I'm not going to go. I know you told me to, but no. No. and these things are a result of struggling to obey god you know one of the the realities of the human heart is it it always believes one of the sinful things of our hearts is we always believe that we're right and so we're going to see a lot of these things come into play over the next several weeks as we dig into the book of jonah further let's pray Heavenly Father, as always, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that your word challenges us, that it is sharp as a double-edged sword. Lord, there's there's times that we need to to check our own hearts and, and recognize when we are trying to make a God of our, our own design. And when we are struggling with trust because maybe we just can't see why you're calling us to do something, why you've told us to do something. So Lord, I pray that you would do a deep work in our hearts over the next several weeks as we use Jonah as a, as a jumping off point to examine our own hearts in faith. Father, prepare us as we get ready to celebrate Easter and celebrate the the grandness of your mercy. Help us through the example of Jonah to understand what your mercy means, what it entails, what we have received, and what we're to do with that. God, have your way in our hearts, I pray. Today and every day. In Jesus' name. Amen.